In mid-1975, a Senate Select Committee on Intelligence investigated abuses by the CIA, NSA, FBI, and IRS in what would be known as the Church Committee. The committee would hold closed-door hearings with many giving testimony. One such individual, a wavy-haired man with blue eyes hidden behind dark sunglasses, dressed in a blue blazer that sported a polka-dot handkerchief, would answer the committee's questions and put on quite a show, a performance, one worthy of a Hollywood B-movie, just like the ones he used to produce. That man was Johnny Handsome Roselli, an infamous member of the Mafia. While under oath, he testified of an elaborate scheme orchestrated by the CIA involving himself and his longtime friend, Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana. The committee would press him. Why would the CIA recruit a mobster's help? What was the purpose of this mission? And with the bravado of a staunch patriot, he simply replied, to assassinate Castro. You're listening to Conspiracy. What will you believe? After JFK's assassination and the Watergate scandal, the nation was in turmoil with an increasing distrust in government. The New York Times would spark a series of congressional hearings after publishing an article about James Angleton and CIA counterintelligence. This article would get Angleton fired and expose the CIA's counterintelligence corruption. More questions would arise after the committee discovered the plot to assassinate Castro the involvement of the mafia, and the fact that Alan Dulles knew all of this and as a member of the Warren Commission, failed to bring it to the committee's attention. After World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union would engage in a Cold War, which helped facilitate the creation of President Truman's National Security Act of 1947. This act created the Central Intelligence Agency, and by 1953, the Director of Intelligence was Alan Dulles. Between 1947 and 2005, this position acted as the principal intelligence advisor to the president and the National Security Council, and it coordinated activities between all the various U.S. intelligence agencies. The National Security Intelligence Reform Act of 2004, and it would establish a new cabinet position, the Director of National Intelligence, which now serves as the head of the United States intelligence community, including the CIA. But back in 1953, the intel chief was Dulles, and as the top dog, he'd been highly successful in creating covert operations that were designed to resist communist expansion. Some of these operations included coups in Guatemala and Iran. But Dulles would take a hit in October of 1957. The Soviet Union would announce their success in launching Sputnik 1 into low Earth orbit. Sputnik was the first artificial satellite and had huge implications for America's national security and intelligence operations. The next month, the Soviets would launch Sputnik 2, and that carried the first living animal, a dog named Laika, into space. This would spark what would become known as the Sputnik Crisis and trigger the space race and the creation of agencies like DARPA and NASA. 
The Cold War had created an atmosphere of panic and fear over communism, which permeated through the American public. The Soviet success with Sputnik 1 and 2 sent a shockwave of terror through the American public and government. They were worried the Soviets could now rain down nukes upon the U.S. from space. The Soviets were making technological leaps quickly, and with Sputnik appearing only two years after they had developed their own hydrogen bomb, fear ran rampant. These technological advances were seen as intelligence failures, and the blame was assigned to Dulles, and things became worse when the Soviets gained a new political satellite that was just 90 miles off the Florida coastline, Cuba. By 1959, Fidel Castro and his guerrilla fighters won their revolutionary campaign against Fulgencio Batista's corrupt Cuban government. Castro loathed the CIA and rejected any American business interests in Cuba, going so far as shutting down mafia-owned casinos in Havana. Likewise, the Eisenhower administration was not a fan of Castro. Historian Stephen Ambrose would say that although Eisenhower and his advisors couldn't decide if Castro was a communist or not, they nevertheless wanted to be rid of him and the danger he presented. This attitude towards Castro would put enormous pressure on Dulles and the CIA to halt the Soviets' increasing influence over Cuba. Castro would make two trips to the U.S., first in April 1959 and again the following year to visit the United Nations. On display was his charisma, and he glamored the press by feeding a tiger at the Bronx Zoo, posing with schoolchildren for photos at his hotel, and lecturing a group of newspaper editors about his new government. Eisenhower wasn't impressed, and he refused to meet with the Cuban leader. Instead, he sent his vice president, Richard Nixon. The Nixon-Castro meeting did not go well at all, and Nixon would badger Dulles, wanting to know what he was doing to get rid of the Cuban leader. In response, Dulles put together a seven-page report for Nixon entitled, What We Are Doing in Cuba. It included plans to embarrass Castro by tainting his food with drugs, such as LSD, and make him appear irrational. Security was intense during the Castro trips because he feared he would be assassinated. Proving his fears correct, dozens of New York City detectives and police barricades at Central Park protected Castro after a man carrying a homemade bomb was arrested. Not surprisingly, the press presented Castro as a brave hero with a target on his back. And this created more difficulties for Dulles. The old ways of spying couldn't solve the Cuban problem. Castro had to be eliminated, buried deep into the ground. But assassination wasn't quite legal. But, as you may have guessed it, this wouldn't stop the CIA from trying. Officials would thumb through the 1947 National Security Act, searching for anything that could be used to circumvent any restrictions. And their diligence paid off when they found the phrase allowing for other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting the national security. They now interpreted that phrase to justify killing objectionable foreign leaders all in the name of national security. It's kind of crazy to think that during Castro's second visit to New York in the United Nations in 1960, New York City police were exhausting all resources to protect him, and the CIA was secretly trying to kill him. And the CIA's weapon of choice? An exploding cigar. A CIA agent would ask New York City's Chief Inspector Michael Murphy to purposely place a box of cigars, carrying the weaponized one, near Castro so he would smoke it. Once lit, the cigar would explode, taking Castro's head with it. Shocked, Murphy refused. And so, just like that, the only thing to explode were the CIA's plans. But they would recover and begin anew. It was decided that no one within the agency would be the one to fire the weapons that took out Castro. 
they would have to recruit outsiders to make the plan work. The job to recruit willing assassins and put together a plan would fall on case officer James O'Connell. O'Connell's suggestion was to recruit members of the mafia, men with a taste for unlawfulness and violence. But to do this, the CIA would need a cutout. It was the agency's term for a go-between, insulating spies from one another or shielding superiors from any culpability. O'Connell's boss, Chef Edwards, knew of just the man, and so he instructed O'Connell to get in touch with Bob Mayhew. Mayhew began his career after World War II in Hoover's FBI, where he claimed to have investigated counterintelligence cases and learned the importance of electronic listening devices. Mayhew later opened his own private detective firm in Washington, D.C. And besides being a cutout, Mayhew was also a fixer, which meant that for the right fee, Mayhew could fix or make special problems go away. One of Mayhew's earliest and most valued clients was the CIA. It pays to have friends in high places, and the CIA put Mayhew on a $500 a month retainer as a cutout. Over the years, Mayhew has been intimately involved in providing support for some of the CIA's most sensitive operations, the agency would later admit. Mayhew's expertise for off-the-books assignments supposedly was the inspiration for the 1960s television show Mission Impossible. Edwards and O'Connell would approach Mayhew about the Castro problem. But for Mayhew, this was a hard pill to swallow. Though I'm no saint, I'm a religious man, and I knew that the CIA was talking about murder he would say. It was one thing in the name of patriotism and a hefty paycheck to set up political enemies, using sex, or arranging for hidden surveillance, but murder was something else. Mayhew would recall, they said it was necessary to protect the country. They used the analogy of World War II. If we had known the exact bunker that Hitler was in during the war, we wouldn't have hesitated to kill the bastard. The CIA felt exactly the same way about Castro. Still uncertain, he told him, I have to think about it very deeply. I'll give you my answer tomorrow. That night, inside his home, with his wife and children asleep, he stayed up all night in his downstairs rec room, trying to come to terms with what the CIA was asking of him. Recalling that night, he would say, I considered myself a reasonably good Catholic, and I did not like the idea of getting involved with murdering anybody. But mostly, he wondered if he was willing to become an assassin. The CIA's request presented another problem for Mayhew. He worried what his most prized client, Howard Hughes, would think. The cutout feared he could lose his sizable compensation from Hughes. Hughes was a notoriously secretive man, and Mayhew worried that their connection might get Hughes caught up in the Castro controversy. Mayhew's relationship with Hughes was unusual. They never met in person, communicating only by phone or other intermediaries, and yet, Mayhew was hired to be his eyes, his ears, his mouthpiece. Hughes had provided a huge retainer for Mayhew, which he used to move his Washington-based firm out to the West Coast. It was enough money to buy a beautiful home and two new Cadillacs. This exclusive deal required Mayhew to give up most of his other clients. And if Mayhew agreed to the CIA's assignment, he put himself at risk to lose everything. FBI records show that Mayhew was reluctant to become involved in the operation since he thought it might interfere with his relationship with his new client, Howard Hughes. His reluctance would quickly vanish when he casually mentioned the CIA's Cuba invitation and Hughes gave his blessing. Hughes already had ties to the CIA. During the 1960s, 
he would help several CIA fronts and covert operations, including an $800 million operation to recover a sunken Soviet submarine in the Pacific, which was using one of Hughes' underwater devices. Castro's name and assassination were never mentioned, and Mayhew kept the topic within the bounds of need to know. But Hughes was familiar with the CIA's secrecy, and more importantly, he knew having the government in your corner was good for business. The CIA reasoned that the best way to keep plausible deniability was to recruit someone in the mafia who could conduct the assassination of Castro. Not only would it seem laughable to most of the public that the CIA would conduct any business with the mafia, the CIA knew that the mob harbored their own hatred for Castro. If the mafia murdered Castro, no one would attach any political agenda to that killing. And so, O'Connell and Edwards specified that the CIA wanted Mayhew to recruit his friend, Johnny Roselli, for the job. They believed Roselli was the kind of man who could be trusted with such a risky assignment. It also helped that Roselli had access to the highest levels of the mafia. Mayhew had met Johnny a few years earlier through a mutual friend. Mayhew was having difficulty getting a room at an overbooked Vegas hotel, and Washington powerhouse lawyer Edward Bennett Williams suggested he ask Roselli for help. And so he took his suggestion and reached out to Roselli. And with a snap of a finger, doors that were once closed were now open. For two men who often straddled both sides of the law, the gangster and the cutout found much in common and quickly became friends. They would often eat together when both men were in Vegas or Los Angeles. Roselli had even attended Thanksgiving at the Mayhew home one year. Mayhew would recall, We built a solid friendship over the years, so solid in fact that my children took to calling him Uncle Johnny. It was around Labor Day, 1960, when Johnny Roselli would meet with Mayhew for lunch at the Brown Derby in Hollywood. Beforehand, on the telephone, Mayhew said he wanted to get together to discuss a business proposition. At the Brown Derby, once business was brought up, Mayhew began with a lie, or, as the Intel community calls it, a cover story. He told Roselli that he represented a group of international businessmen who had been thrown out of Cuba by the communist takeover. They wanted Castro dead. Roselli moved in a world full of deceit and deception, so Mayhew's story, yeah, he wasn't buying it. Roselli knew Mayhew's firm worked for the CIA, and right away, he suspected the government had their hands all over this. And so Mayhew was left with no choice but to acknowledge the private investor's angle was a lie. He gave Roselli the true story explaining the CIA's plan to kill Castro was genuine. The assassination attempt would be a cutout operation financed by the CIA with a $150,000 bounty. The desired plan was for Roselli and his mobster associates to eliminate Castro with gunfire, or as the CIA would coin it, gangster style, just like the St. Valentine's Day massacre during the Al Capone days in Chicago. The CIA trusted that the mafia could rely on old gambling contacts in Havana to set up the unsuspecting communist dictator. And of course, Mayhew would be the intermediary between the CIA and the mafia. Mayhew aggressively expressed that the whole operation required secrecy and that those involved needed to function in a need-to-know environment. The government must be able to assert total deniability. At this point, Roselli reportedly burst out laughing. He found it hilarious that the government would want to recruit him for anything. The feds were always trying to get him on something. Mayhew did his best to calm Roselli's fears, telling him that the government truly did want his help. The CIA would give him free reign to eliminate Castro. 
But Mayhew could see that he was on the verge of losing Roselli, and so he reminded him of the man who'd cost the mafia millions by shutting down their Havana casinos and other gambling interests. This reminder did give Roselli pause, but he was still reluctant. Maybe this was an elaborate setup to catch him accepting a hit job. And even if Roselli agreed to help, he would still be required to consult the mafia bosses. He needed their approval. The mafia might have the backing of the CIA, but that wasn't a guarantee that the FBI or some other law enforcement agency wouldn't come knocking. Mayhew couldn't give any guarantees for the government, but he did make assurances that he would look the other way if Roselli required other illegal methods to make sure that they could get the job done. He further promised Roselli, I won't ever reveal the content of any private conversations. It's none of my business. The two men were close friends, but this conversation would stretch any friendship to its limit. There was a lengthy period of silence before Roselli said, I would have to be satisfied that this is a government project. He would need to meet Mayhew's CIA handler. Mayhew could see that he had his hooks into Roselli and wanted to rope him in with the CIA's offer of what would amount in today's market as roughly $1.1 million in pay upon Castro's death. But Roselli didn't care about the money. He might be a criminal, but all things said and done, he was loyal to America. Explaining Roselli's motivation, Mayhew said, Many people have speculated that Johnny was looking for an eventual deal with the government or some sort of big payoff. The truth, as corny as it may sound, is that down deep, he thought it was his patriotic duty. Now, Roselli might be moved to help because he felt it was his patriotic duty, but he still reported and answered to others. In 1960, the American Mafia was at the height of its power and influence. There was a national commission that guarded and protected all the Mafia's individual territories and fiefdoms. This commission ensured that disputes between various ruling leaders did not get out of hand and ruin the La Casa Nostra's enormous sources for revenue. Under its unforgiving rules, Roselli needed to inform the National Commission of the CIA's secret plan to kill Castro, which would restore the Mafia's gambling interest in Cuba and recoup millions in revenue. The first thing Roselli must do is talk to his main boss, Sam Giancana, the head of Chicago's organized crime empire. The two gangsters had worked together for years, sharing many friends and circles. In a business where loyalty without the threat of being buried was rare, but a sense of loyalty existed between the two. Although he was in a position of authority, Giancana listened to Roselli's ideas and often adopted them. But Giancana could be volatile and aggressive. He didn't always agree. A plan like this one might strike Giancana as foolish or not worth the risk. During the Brown Derby lunch, Roselli failed to explain to Mayhew the full complexity of the Mafia world. And likewise, Mayhew didn't explain his shadowy relationship to the CIA's hierarchy. I think Mayhew assumed Roselli could launch a deadly assault on a foreign leader all on his own. Roselli agreed to cooperate, but he left the restaurant that day without mentioning one essential fact. Without Giacana's approval, he couldn't move forward. Located on the outskirts of Havana sat the San Susi, the prized nightclub and casino of Giancana. It was always full of nearly naked dancers, they always booked big-name entertainment, and its elaborate production numbers increased its appeal to customers. But the big thing at the San Susi was gambling. Guests dropped hundreds of dollars a night, a lot of money for the time. The nightclub was ran by Giancana and the Chicago Outfit, 
Giancana pumped more than a million dollars into turning this old Spanish villa into a state-of-the-art gambling center. While the White House and CIA viewed Cuba primarily in geopolitical terms, the mafia calculated in terms of dollars and cents. At the San Susi, Giancana and Roselli relied on Santo Traficante Jr. to supervise the nightclub. Known to be quiet but cunning, Traficante was the mafia's local power in Cuba. Because of Giancana and Roselli's success in Havana's casinos, they would recruit Traficante's help with Castro. Unfortunately, both men will have misread Traficante, and will soon find out he had conflicting loyalties and the capacity for treachery. The gambling casinos in Havana had been an incredible source of income for the Mafia since the Prohibition days in the early 1930s. These casinos were notoriously corrupt, so much so that the Mafia-owned businesses ran by Traficante and others were considered the most honest. High rollers could gamble in the American mob-owned casinos and be reassured they weren't being cheated at the tables and games, which could have loaded dice, shady dealers, or rigged roulette wheels. When Fidel Castro overthrew the Batista government in 1959, he publicly expressed his hatred toward the gangsters, threatening to deport them or shoot them on sight. And the passion of Castro's revolutionary takeover led to the torching of the San Susi and other mob-owned casinos. Giancana hated to lose the San Susi and his other Cuban investments, and Castro's ban on American-owned businesses included Sam's shrimp boat business. The CIA's operation to assassinate Castro offered gangsters like Giancana and Roselli an opportunity to seek revenge and to reclaim the San Susi and restart Mafia's interests in Cuba. The realization that the U.S. government wanted to get rid of Castro just as much as the Mafia, even if for different reasons, was an incredible opportunity for the mobsters. Yet, this unholy alliance was not without risk, but the reward outweighed a potential bad outcome. So they decided to push forward with the CIA's plan. As promised, Mayhew set up another meeting with Roselli in early September 1960 at the Hilton Savoy Plaza Hotel in New York City. At this meeting would be Mayhew's handler, James O'Connell. He had convinced them to come to this meeting, and he also reassured O'Connell that the CIA's conspiracy to kill Castro was moving along as planned, and in turn, O'Connell reassured his superiors. While O'Connell was convinced to attend the meeting, he insisted on maintaining his original cover, that disgruntled industrial heads were behind the assassination plot. And he was introduced to Roselli as Jim Olds. O'Connell had no idea that Mayhew had already confessed the CIA's role to the gangster, but Roselli played along. Roselli had immediately recognized O'Connell's face from a previous clam bake that had been held in Mayhew's backyard sometime in 1959. It was here that O'Connell's boss, Chef Edwards, sought Roselli to chat with him. At the time, the CIA was still putting together their plan, and Roselli's name had been offered up. So when Edwards saw that he was at the party, he wasn't going to miss the opportunity to chat with him. For Roselli, seeing O'Connell confirmed the CIA's involvement. The hotel conversation progressed smoothly, with all three agreeing the Mafia's prior connections with Cubans in Havana's gambling underworld would be invaluable to their assassination plot. The meeting concluded with Roselli agreeing to a future meeting in Florida, where he promised to introduce the CIA agent and Mayhew to a man named Sam Gold, who had ties to the Cuban crowd. After meeting O'Connell, Roselli would travel to Manhattan to see Giancana and get him caught up. The gangsters agreed to continue on with the CIA's plan, but Giancana remained skeptical about the assassination's chances of success. 
and this may be the reason he never informed the Mafia's National Commission about the plan, as he would have been expected to do. Back in Washington, O'Connell's bosses were pleased. In this small administrative circle, news about his progress spread quickly, from O'Connell and his superior director of security, Chef Edwards, to the deputy director, Richard Bicell, and to the CIA's longtime chief, Alan Dulles. When they briefed Dulles on O'Connell's progress, Bissell and Edwards avoided any bad words, such as mafia or assassination. They kept their wordplay to the most elemental ABC terms. A meant Mayhew, B was Roselli, and C was for their intended target in Cuba. During the debriefing, Dulles merely nodded his understanding and approval. He said nothing and made no objections. While Dulles was fully aware of the assassination plot, America's top cop, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, was kept in the dark. The FBI had gathered and continued to gather a lot of information about the Chicago mob from a planted listening device that they called Little Al. The FBI managed to get the device planted at this tailor shop, which fronted as the Chicago Outfit's headquarters. The FBI eventually realized that the one mobster they weren't picking up on the device was Giancana. He conducted most of his business at a Forest Park restaurant called the Armory Lounge. After this revelation, the FBI would get a second listening device installed, and sure enough, they would at last hear Giancana's voice, and to the FBI's surprise, a plot to kill Castro. The assassination plot was about to press forward quickly, and the next step after recruiting Giancana and Roselli took place at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. Mayhew and O'Connell would meet Roselli in the hotel's Boom Boom Room, where he would introduce a Sam Gold to them. Obviously, we know this was Giancana. During the conversation with Mayhew, Giancana would nod at another figure that was in the room. He called him Joe, and Joe also knew the Cuban crowd. Joe was actually Santo Traficante Jr., the high-level Florida boss who had worked with Roselli and Giancana. His presence now known, Joe moved to their table to join the conversation. He was further introduced as someone who could serve as a courier to Cuba and make arrangements there. With introductions over, the squad moved to a hotel suite, where the serious discussions began. The government wanted Castro's assassination to be a show, a bloodbath. They imagined a very public mob hit. This would devastate Castro's supporters and rally the Cuban exiles looking to restore a U.S.-friendly government. Sam Gold immediately shut that down. Gunfire would be too messy, he argued. A public spectacle would be a suicide mission for anyone willing to enact that plan. And that meant... They would find no one who was willing. Giancana pushed for something with less fanfare, something subtle like a poison-laced pill that could be added to Castro's food or drink. A quieter approach such as a pharmaceutical method would ensure there were no fingerprints on a murder weapon, and all involved could deny their culpability. The gangsters believed recruiting a Cuban spy was the safest approach, someone who could get in, get out quietly, or had access to Castro. This was agreeable to Mayhew and O'Connell and they promised final approval after they debriefed their higher-ups. Several days later, while still in Florida, O'Connell received an urgent call from Mayhew. Stunned, Mayhew said he saw photos of Roselli's two mysterious friends inside Parade Magazine, which was a Sunday newspaper supplement that went around the nation. And it featured the FBI's list of America's top 10 gangsters and included their pictures. And, of course, Sam Gold, as we know, was really Sam Giancana, and Quiet Joe was actually Santo Traficante Jr. 
You see, neither Mayhew or O'Connell had any idea who they were really talking to that day. But when the higher-ups at the CIA discovered this information, they weren't surprised or concerned. And so the plans moved forward. But while this was going on, there was another matter taking place behind the scenes, which would have much bigger implications down the road. Sam Giancana would find himself in a love triangle, one that would involve John F. Kennedy. Next time on Conspiracy, we discuss what actually happened with the assassination plot, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and how Mafia and Cuba had reasons to kill JFK.